electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. The market's well in focus. Here's what's ahead this whole hour. Stocks mostly sinking again as we kick off what is historically the worst week of the year for the equity market. All this is rising yields and a dominating dollar slam stocks. Is there any sign of a bounce anytime soon? And what do you buy right now against this backdrop? We are going to have three names that are well positioned for the gains right now. Plus, the CEO of America's biggest energy exporting port joining us live right here at CNBC on set with his view on the state of energy, the economy, the supply chain, and more. All that as oil hits its lowest level since January 6th. And all this week, something very special on the exchange. We are going in-depth on the state of debt in America. Today, it is you, the consumer. Credit card balances hitting all-time highs. Credit card rates at the highest level in more than 20 years. So what does this mean for you and for the macro economy? We're going to break it all down. We've got a lot to do in the next 60 minutes. We got to start off where it all ended last week, and that is Bob Pisani at the New York Stock Exchange. And I guess, Bob, we had this horrible week last year. There was some thought that maybe we're going to get a rebound today. I know it's Rosh Hashanah, so the volume's probably a little bit thinner, but this is not the way people wanted the markets to kick off the week. Uh, the volume is indeed thinner than usual for Rosh Hashanah, and we did try to rally very modestly, but the buying power wasn't there. And what did us in was another brief blip up in interest rates. There's the Dow Jones Industrial Average, which was positive earlier in the day, but uh, we uh, United Health weighed on there. Uh, Goldman Sachs, to a lesser extent, some of the oil stocks like Chevron weighed on that. Uh, the S&P 500 was briefly below 36.66. That is the old June low. We have. Uh, bounced a little bit uh, from there. Uh, but the Nasdaq also was positive until just a little while ago, until just about noon Eastern time. It, too, is now fractionally lower. Now, what caused all of this? Well, uh, frankly, yields and, and yield worries that are out there. Look at the 10-year Treasury. Around noon, we started moving up again rather aggressively. Those are big, big moves. Uh, you're talking about 15 basis points or so uh, on the day. That's unusual. That's enough to get the stock market's attention. Two-year also moved to the upside. And, well, you guess what? Growth stocks kind of moved down. Take a look at big cap tech. All of them were in positive territory. Right now, uh, as I glanced earlier, Microsoft was positive briefly, and so was Apple. Uh, but uh, Cisco's still fractionally positive. But some of the other ones, uh, like NVIDIA, are on the negative side here. Transports, uh, even before we moved up in the middle of the day, we saw a lot of new lows still out there, particularly in some of the industrial names, transports like United Parcel, Southwest Air, even some of the railroads like CSX. Uh, and I would just point out uh, among the new low lists uh, are real estate investment trusts. Now, remember, these REITs do two things. They compete for yield against other uh, bond-like investments, including treasuries, of course, uh, and utilities. But they also uh, act as proxies for demand, uh, Brian, for demand for apartments, for example, or demand for office space. Uh, and so these two factors come into play here, and both of them are, are negative for REITs right now. No buying interest, uh, Brian. That's what we need, a little bit of picking on the bottom. And unfortunately, they still don't have the nerve to do it. It's quite annoying considering we're so overbought. You've seen the numbers, crazy overbought. Still not enough. Losing money, it is annoying. Well said. Bob Pisani, thank you very much. 
All right, so as Bob just noted, stocks are struggling to recover from last week's Fed-fueled sell-off. Earlier today, some tech stocks were up, but now the Nasdaq is back down. Check this out. The S&P 500 has now lost 10% in just 30 days. You're probably asking, are we bottoming out and getting ready for any kind of a pop? Maybe not, says your first guest today. Joining us now is David Harden. He's the CEO and CIO of Summit Global Investments. David, uh, appreciate you coming on. I mean, the market clearly, to Bob's point, oversold in the short term, but I don't hear anybody screaming optimism. Well, no, not yet. Uh, let's look at the dollar. The dollar is still gaining very straight, strengthening very strong. It's gaining against all other currencies. That's creating a problem. Yields are rising, and the VIX isn't. So we still don't have a capitulation going on in the markets, which tells me painfully we have more lows to go. We have more, more downside to, ha- to happen. For how long and how much? <laughs> well, that's, that's the magic eight ball question, right? And so I, I would look for at least a 3,500 on the S&P 500. Um, I think that's been said before. I'm not the first one to say that, but I've been looking for that since June. So the rally, very much a bull market rally. Those are common. If you look across um, other market cycles, think of um, 68 to 70, 76 to 78, 80 to 82. We have a lot of time left. And so, you know, this this could go on for for some time. But I think the chances of recession are far more likely now because of the Fed and they're and they're and they're keeping the tone the same. They're not changing. And so I think we're going to have some more downside, and I would like to see that continue. Yes, we could get there quickly, but not without the VIX, not without yields, and not without the dollar. So I think it's going to be more pain a little bit longer ahead. So what do you do? So, so I, would say, I would say look for the bottoming maybe in the fourth quarter, but maybe even into the first quarter. Yeah, maybe. I mean, seasonally, this stinks. We said it. it's the worst week of the year for the markets, one of the worst months. Heading into the year end tends to be a little bit better. That's for shorter-term investors. You want to try to trade the market and go ahead. Longer term, though, what are you advising? Just hold cash, like build up money and and try to buy at some point? Or should we be dollar cost averaging right now? If I'm investing for 10 years out, I don't know a lot, David, except I know that the Hokies aren't going to win the national championship anytime soon. And stocks are probably going to be higher in 10 years. Well, the Hokies and the Jazz really don't have a lot of hope in their rebuilding, but the market's rebuilding too. And so maybe there is a chance here for some dollar cost averaging that's going on, but I would probably wait even on the dollar cost averaging. But I do think you need to stay defensive. Short-term yields are great. You can find some very good 5% munis out there that are are fantastic in short-term and wait a little bit longer if you'd like to. I I know um, that's getting recommended a lot from my investment team to me. So, but... From a standpoint of stocks, I think you need to stay defensive. I, I like some names that are, you know, kind of overpicked or oversold or maybe more defensive, like Lockheed Martin or Agonquit Power up in Canada, some utility type names that I think are very well positioned for where we're at right now. And you can start to nibble in certain industries with certain names. But as a market as a whole, I would wait till about 35, 50 or something like this nature. And then, yeah, sure, dollar cost average, get in there, put your money to work. Um, I've been telling even, you know, my own son, hey, when should I get in the market, Dad? Probably about 3,500, 3,550. 3,500, 3,550. All right, names and numbers that we are watching, David. It's been a rough go. Got to ride it out. David Harden at Summit Global Investments taking a knock at the Jazz as well. We each took knocks at our own teams. David Harden, thank you very much. Hope to be wrong, by the way, about that one. All right, and now more than ever, you want to hear from the investing heavyweights. Well, that's going to happen. At CNBC's Delivering Alpha Conference. It returns in person two days, Wednesday, September 28th, you want to go? Go to cnbcevents.com to register all kinds of great guests. 
See them on your screen. Great panels. By the way, nice cocktail party afterwards. And if you go, you'll get to meet great folks like me. I'll see you there. Hopefully sign up today. Well, the risk of a global recession hitting oil, which has fallen to its lowest level since the beginning of the year. For the month, WTI crude is down more than 10 percent. Despite the fact that American oil and natural gas has largely become the savior of Europe. Without our exports, particularly LNG, Europe would be in a far worse spot. And much of American liquefied natural gas comes out of Chenier's facility, which is based in Corpus Christi, Texas. Speaking of Corpus, let's bring in Sean Strawbridge. He's the CEO of the port of Corpus Christi. By dollar value, they are America's largest energy port. There's no containers. It is just energy. Sean, good to have you on set. Thanks for joining us. Thanks you got for a, having me. You got a giant presentation there on the table. I'm, you're, you're making me nervous now. Let's talk about oil, gas, and LNG. How big of a deal is this for you? How big of a deal is it for Texas and for America? Well, first of all, Brian, thanks for having me. Look, the energy export markets have really been the boom for our port and certainly for Texas and the United States. We have for decades really had a, 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 uh, a trade uh, deficit, uh, primarily with China. Uh, our largest commodity export for decades was aircraft and aircraft parts. But only within the last five years, it's now energy. Number one is petroleum products. Number two is crude oil. Number three is liquefied natural gas. And that's really been the growth story for Texas uh, and certainly for us at the Port of Corpus Christi. I've been there. I've been at Chenier's facility. And they're expanding that facility, adding what they call trains. It's not actually a train. I thought it was actually a train, but it's not. Um, but it's a major expansion, which is great for Chenier and probably for Europe and Asia. Can they get the natural gas? Do you have the ability to pipe enough natural gas into your facility, Chenier, et cetera? Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, you look at energy, it's really the four P's, as I like to call it. It's production, it's pipelines, it's processing, and it's ports. So we, we are seeing an increase in production. We are seeing more pipelines being laid from the production fields to the coast. The challenge really of late is getting that processing capacity. Chenier has announced a phase three expansion. It has gone through their FID process. Uh, but those new molecules will probably not hit the market until 2024 or 2025. The regulatory headwinds that we've experienced of late is really going to be the challenge in the near term. Yeah, regulatory issues. I mean, purely political. And obviously, there's been so much fighting. It's hard for the public to know what to believe there. It's not just about fossil fuels, though, is it? I mean, when you talk about the green, clean, whatever you want to call it, energy transition, hydrogen, a big part of that, lithium-ion batteries, Tesla, based in Texas now. That's right. How much of that business are you going to get, and how much do you have to adjust your model to get it? Well, look, when you talk about the energy transition, the energy evolution, the energy transformation, however you want to characterize it, it's the traditional energy companies that are going to play a front and center role in that type of transition. They have all of, the, uh, all of the infrastructure and all the experience. When you talk about hydrogen, for example, which seems to be what's percolating to the top of the next generation of clean energy fuels, hydrogen from hydrocarbons will be the primary source in the near term. Texas not only has an abundance of fossil fuels, but it also is the largest producer of renewable energy. 
number one in wind, mm-hmm. and number two in solar. So taking full advantage of that infrastructure as well, we really see the next leg up in our evolution as being a large-scale hydrogen production hub, not only for domestic consumption, but we will have enough to be exporting to our allies and our partners around the world. The one thing I love about talking about ports and logistics, first off, just giant ships are cool. I mean, they're cool to look at, right? Like, it's a giant ship. Is you have your pulse sort of on the forefront of the economy. Now, you're a little more specialized with with energy. You're not doing containers and bringing in TVs from Japan or whatever it might be. But from your perch, Sean, do you see impending economic doom for the United States? Well, certainly, if you're talking about crude oil, we are going to have a tight supply situation. I mean, right now, you look at the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. It has less volume in it than commercial storage right now. That's the first time ever that that's happened. So we are going to see some tight supply. I think when you're seeing the rate pressure right now on crude, it's really because of the strengthening dollar. But I do expect that we will see higher crude prices in the medium term as we go to replenish some of those reserves. You know, when we talk about uh, resiliency, Texas is a very resilient state. You mentioned Tesla. Uh, Tesla has announced their lithium battery plant near Corpus Christi. They will be bringing in the, the materials needed to build those, uh, those batteries. So there is a, a resurgence in steel manufacturing now in the United States. So we are seeing an economic resiliency yeah. in Texas and certainly in our region that we haven't seen previously. I should have just come seen you because I was in Texas yesterday. I was there for a couple of days. I was in Dallas, not near you. But, you know, we're talking to everybody, whether it's you go to Michigan or Wisconsin, where I spent a lot of time this summer or Texas or here in New Jersey, wherever it is, nobody can find labor. I have no idea where they went or what people are doing, but labor is, as you know, in extremely short supply. Are you able to find the people you need? Yeah, that's a great question, uh, Brian. So we are seeing over 1,000 people a day migrate to Texas. Many are coming from California. Uh, Texas is a much more favorable well, I, I business climate. I saw the tags in Dallas. Texas is a, lot a of much Glendale Toyotas. Absolutely, Texas is a much more friendly business climate. Certainly, a more favorable tax climate. So, when you talk about some of that, that labor, we absolutely uh, think that we'll be able to meet those demands. We're seeing a lot of foreign direct investment coming into the state as well. American dollars coming back to the United States, taking advantage of the fact that our Henry Hub gas is one-sixth yeah, of what yeah, it is yeah. in terms of landed cost in Europe. So I think you are going to see a major uh, manufacturing resurgence. And our proximity to Mexico, which is obviously one of our largest trading partners, also makes it an ideal environment for some of these larger industrial investments that we see if, going If forward. you are a giant European manufacturer of an energy-intensive product, maybe a chemical, maybe an aluminum, maybe an automobile, I don't know how you're not looking at the United States right now. Yes. It, because they, they can't, it's not just the high price, right, Sean? It's the swings. You can't run a business when you're paying one price one year and five times that price the next year. I think the United States, and Texas in particular, may be a big beneficiary of some of Europe's problems. Yeah, I think, I think you're absolutely right. Certainty is what the markets want. Any market uh, wants certainty. And when you talk about some of the more nefarious sources of energy that Europe has depended upon to transition to perhaps more U.S. energy, that is really going to bring some stability in the medium term. But absolutely, if you're going to make those large-scale investments and it is an energy-intensive yeah. business, you want to have those investments near where those I'm energy gonna, sources okay, are. Now, this is a topic we brought up last week, and maybe you don't want to comment on it. Uh, there, were, there have been eight refinery fires around the world in the last three weeks. 
Indiana, Ohio, here. We had one in Venezuela, Argentina, coal factory. It's maybe just complete coincidence. What can we do to guarantee the physical security of some of these facilities that are so critical to the world, Sean? Well, look, the Department of Homeland Security recognizes refineries as critical now. You know what I'm talking about. Yeah. We absolutely have to do everything that we can. And at the Port of Corpus Christi, we take all of those facilities, uh, their security, uh, absolute, with absolute seriousness. The port itself provides public safety. We have our own police force. We have fire protection. Uh, we work with the federal, uh, the federal agencies, uh, but there is certainly more to be done. As we continue to grow in prominence in the world stage from an energy standpoint, we do become uh, perhaps a, uh, uh, a target, and we have to do more at the federal level to make sure that we're protecting yeah, these assets. making sure it is physically protected as well. Cyber, too. Sean Strawbridge, appreciate you being here in New Jersey. Thanks for go, having Go me. check out the port of New Jersey. It's not too bad. A lot of cars coming in. And containers. And containers. Sean, thank you very much. All right, let's go ahead and get a check on these markets because we are not quite at session low. We are, you know what? We are at session lows. Dom said it was down 300, was the LOD, as he called it, the low of the day. We're below that now. The Dow's off 350 or 1.2%. NASDAQ holding up a little bit better, but the NASDAQ was in the green a little bit earlier today. Again, volume is lighter. Rosh Hashanah. So we're seeing a lot of people that are just not at their desk today, but still that selling volume and that pressure that we had from last week. Rolling on now, the 10-year yield, look at the 10-year Treasury note, yielding 3.89%. Yields really have been the story. They are at the highs of the session as well. So as yields go up, we are seeing stocks and equities come down. Rough start to the week, which, as we noted, is historically the worst week of the year for the equity markets. All right, on deck. The U.S. dollar has not been weak. It is surging, and it is hitting a lot of stocks. But coming up. Jeff Kilberg has some names he thinks can win from King Dollar's move. But before that, they're kicking off a new series this week, looking at the state of debt in America. We're starting with you, the consumer. You may have noticed credit card rates are near record highs. What does that mean for delinquencies, defaults, and your money? We're going to dig into the debt dilemma. And as we head to break, here's a quick look at shares of Planus Fitness, one of the few stocks higher today. Planus Fitness getting an upgrade to a strong buy. Maybe it's a play on fitness strong at Raymond James. The firm saying they are positive on the low-cost business model and the balance sheet. And maybe people getting sick of working out in their basement and going back to the gym. We are back right after this. This episode is brought to you by AARP. Ten years from today, Lisa Schneider will trade in her office job to become the leader of a pack of dogs. As the owner of her own dog rescue, that is. A second act made possible by the reskilling courses Lisa's taking now with AARP to help make sure her income lives as long as she does. And she can finally run with the big dogs and the small dogs who just think they're big dogs. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org skills. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. 
right, welcome back to The Exchange. Do not underestimate the massive impact that rising rates may have on American business and family balance sheets. According to the New York Federal Reserve, total household debt is now at a record high of more than $16.1 trillion. A lot of that is housing. But it also includes a whopping $890 billion in credit card debt alone. And much of the growing debt is on a variable rate, meaning it will go up as rates go up. And it has been. Listen to this. According to Bankrate, the current average credit card APR stands at 18.1%. That is the highest since 1995. And with red-hot inflation making many essentials more expensive than ever already, what does this mean for the state of our debt? Joining us now is Ted Rossman. He is Senior Industry Analyst at Bankrate. Ted, welcome to CNBC. How much do we know, and I won't, I won't hold you to a specific number, but of that 900 or whatever billion in credit card debt, how much of that is either 0% or paid off, and how much of that is really at risk of, of shocking the heck out of consumers with a big jump in their monthly minimum payment? The American Bankers Association says that among active credit card accounts, 54% of them carry debt from month to month, and then the other 46% are paid in full. That's actually close to a record number paying in full. The all-time record is 49%. There's this tale of two cities thing that goes on in the credit card world. You know, we got some people that use the card, get the rewards, life is great. But then there's the other half, more or less, that are carrying expensive debt. And as you noted, typical person's credit card now charges three percentage points more than it did at the start of the year. Yeah, the numbers themselves are scary. But like like a home payment, don't we have to look at this, Ted, not as the absolute number, but as the ability to service that debt? In other words, sort of debt service as a percentage of income. Wages have gone up. That's the good news. So is it fair to say that right now this is not for everybody, but for sort of the median manageable for now? Yes, I think that's a really important point, that if we look at things like the delinquency and default rates, those are very low, historically speaking. They've ticked up a little bit. They were really artificially low in 2020 and 21 because of stimulus and other pandemic factors. But yeah, we look at delinquencies, defaults, the debt to income ratio, all these things kind of writ large are more positive. At the individual household level, credit card debt can be a big deal. I mean, if you're paying minimum payments on 18%, you could drag a $5,000 balance out for 16 years and pay over $6,000 just in interest. I mean, that's a big deal individually, but broadly speaking, credit is flowing. Originations have been at record highs uh, last yeah. year and, and this year as well. Um, so the big picture is more positive, I think. It is. So the one reason we wanted to have you on, Ted, is that it's not about right now, right? We try, what we try to do is talk about the future. And if you go back to, you know, look at the St. Louis Fed, debt service as a percentage of household income was at 13% before the financial crisis. It's now under 10, about 9.5% according to the St. Louis Fed. But that's up off its, to your point, all-time lows. I'm not worried about right now. But as rates keep going up, we could get back to that 10, 12, 13% level, which historically has, has not been good. I think your point is well taken also about leading versus lagging indicators. I mean, it may be that some of what we're citing here is more of a lagging indicator. You could say the same thing about the job market, which we know has been very strong and wage growth has been strong. Now, not as high as inflation has been. So this gets back to this kind of disconnect between 
what people are actually doing and, and how they feel about it. Um, but I would say that right now the credit card market is coming into this from a period of strength. I mean, it, it is an open question as to how this goes moving forward. The main industry theme I'm hearing from banks is normalization, as in back to, let's say, 2019 levels of delinquencies and defaults. So not as low as they have been, but nothing worrisome that would indicate a credit crisis, although certainly all of this bears watching. Yeah, is there some sort of limit? I know there's limits on adjustable rate mortgages. They can only rise, in most cases, by 2% a year. Credit cards cap out just under 30, right? I mean, so we're at 18.1, which means if that's the average, and I hate using averages because we know what averages are, could be a lot of people at 25% and a bunch of people at 5% and then you average at 18 or whatever the number may be. Like, we could keep going up here. Yes, that's right. Yeah, there is not a national cap on credit card rates. Credit unions have a cap of 18%. Um, but for banks, you know, one of the ways they get around these usury laws is they set up in states like Delaware and South Dakota. And yeah, you're right. We do see a lot of people who are being charged 25 or even 30 percent. Um, that 18 percent that we've yep. been citing, that's the average midpoint of the range. So if you have expensive credit card debt, get that zero percent balance transfer card or maybe a low rate personal loan or maybe seek out nonprofit credit counseling because these rates are very high. Yeah, they are very high. Closest, closing in on an all-time high. Ted Rossman, thank you. Appreciate it. Well, you can't talk about debt without talking about the Federal Reserve. So that's what we're going to do tonight. Be sure to tune into a CNBC special, The Fed Factor. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern time tonight. I will be hosting it, and we'll be joined by a panel of experts to look at how the Federal Reserve and rates are impacting your money. Our guests include Roger Ferguson, our friends Tim Seymour and Steve Grasso, and the owner of a small family-run bakery in Massachusetts who is worried that rising rates and rising energy costs may put her and her son out of business. We're going to not talk big business, but this heart of small business as well tonight, 6 p.m. Eastern. We'll see you there. All right, still ahead, from crypto to meme stocks, and now bonds? How the new generation of investors are doing something you probably never thought they would. And as we head to break, Amazon is set to snap a four-day losing streak. It's up a little bit. They announced their second Prime Day sale of the year. It's actually two days, October 11th and 12th. It is the first time that Amazon has held two Prime Day events in the same year. Shares of Amazon, by the way, down 30% since January, on pace for their worst year since 2008. We are back right after this. This episode is brought to you by AARP. Ten years from today, Lisa Schneider will trade in her office job to become the leader of a pack of dogs. As the owner of her own dog rescue, that is. A second act made possible by the reskilling courses Lisa's taking now with AARP to help make sure her income lives as long as she does. And she can finally run with the big dogs. And the small dogs, who just think they're big dogs. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org skills. Welcome back. Markets get hit again to start the week, coming off of what was a terrible week last year. That selling momentum has continued today. The Dow Industrials off 357. They were down 425 just a moment ago. So just off our lows, that's more than 1%. The NASDAQ, a little bit better off. It is down just about four-tenths of 1%. Markets down, stocks down as yields go up. The 10-year yield continues to creep toward 4%. We are seeing yields on the move as well. The 10-year yields at 3.87%. Again, just a tick off our high of the session. The two-year really has been the story because, remember, 
The two-year is like a fortune teller. It kind of tells you where the Federal Reserve is going to go. The Federal Reserve kind of goes to where the two-year is. So if you want to kind of know where the terminal rate or the end might be, that's the two-year. We're at 4.32%. Keep in mind, the two-year was like a half of 1% a year ago or something like that. That's the highest level since August of 2007. All 11 S&P sectors are moving lower, no surprise. The higher dividend-paying sectors are taking the biggest hit. You've got real estate and utilities both down about 3%. It's not all doom and gloom. Got to show you some stocks that are on the upside, right? It is Monday. Shares of Generac, they are higher after Barron said the so-called storm stock could surge 50% on the threat of more power outages across the country. Stock's been battered this year, losing half its value, closing in a new 52-week low. But there's a lot of concerns about as we move more to electrification. Can our grid, which is very, very old, 75 years old in many places, withstand all that along with increased storms? All right, let's get now a CNBC News update with Tyler Matheson. Tyler. Brian, thank you very much. Here's what's happening at this hour. At border crossings, thousands of Russians are waiting in line, stretching for miles to flee their country and avoid getting sent to fight in the war against Ukraine. Wait times reportedly hitting 48 hours to enter Georgia. Many fear Russia will soon close its borders to men of military age in order to halt that exodus. Back home, meantime, in Kentucky, a man who killed three fellow students when he was 14 years old will have to spend the rest of his life in prison without a chance to seek parole. Marco Carniel, now age 39, said he would live at home and continue medical health treatment. The Kentucky Patrol pa- Parole Board, excuse me, voted unanimously to deny that request. And a federal appeals judge has struck down California's ban on privately run immigration detention centers. Private prison operator Geo Group had sued over the ban and was backed by the Biden administration. On the news, getting ready for Hurricane Ian to hit Florida. How residents are protecting their homes and preparing to get out of harm's way. That's tonight at 7 Eastern. Hurricane Ian, that's my son's name. He lives in Florida. It's coming there. Back to you, Brian. Tyler Matheson, best to your son and everybody else that's in Florida. Scary stuff. Tyler, thank you. All right, still ahead, three ways to play the rising dollar and one name to bail on, including this one already down 30% this year. The name and what may make it immune to the swings of the greenback. That's coming up with Jeff Kilberg in moments. And throughout Hispanic Heritage Month, we are celebrating our CNBC teammates and contributors. Today, it is the woman at the helm of this show. She runs The Exchange. She runs Power Lunch. She's my good friend, and she occasionally yells at me. Executive producer, Maria Bowden. Being a Hispanic immigrant has shaped nearly everything I've done to get where I am now. My parents boarded a plane from Argentina with two daughters and two suitcases to give us opportunities we may not have had otherwise. It was bold and courageous, and I've never taken it for granted. If my mom can become a doctor in a new language and my dad worked three jobs to keep us running, then there's nothing I can't do. I've learned to be adaptive and bold in my career, and I don't give up and I never shy away, especially from challenges. Embrace your story and use it to drive you. Welcome back. The surging dollar. Well, it might be great news if you're planning a trip to Europe or the UK, but it's not such great news if you're a multinational company doing sales around the world or a smaller player here in America with no international exposure. So how much of a hit could earnings take and what does it mean for the stocks? Bring in Jeff Kilberg, KKM Financial CEO, 
and CNBC contributor. I got to imagine, Jeff, welcome. Good to see you on set, my man. Great to be here, Sally. All right. Uh, listen, you want to look for companies that probably don't have any international exposure or in a market that may benefit from that international exposure, a name like, uh, reading your notes back to you, a Cleveland Cliffs. That's right. We're trying to find shelter. At the end of the day, we're trying to find insulation. And here we are with the strength in the U.S. dollar. We're seeing reverberations across the globe. If it's uh, the Japan buying their yen last week due to 24-year lows in their currency, this currency war is here, silly. So I think, first and foremost, if you look at the mid-caps, MDY, as an ETF where you can start to allocate towards. But if you want to really you know, dig down underneath the hood, head our friends at Chart, silly, pull up three screeners. I'm looking for P.E. ratios that are attractive in the industry and sector, also price to sales, and lastly, current ratio. In the small cap name, and small cap, as you know, is under $2 billion, we come up with Lazy Boy. That's one of your favorite oh. names. I was, <laughs> I, I love, I, I was joking at the Market Rebellion Conference in Dallas, and somehow Lazy Boy came up, and I said to the audience, it's the only American company left I re- respect because they didn't change their name. It's Lazy Boy. They could have easily become Active Man, That's, but they stayed Lazy Boy. They did, but they're down 37% year to date. But all the metrics are revealing that there is some value in this small cap. Remember, folks, that small caps are higher beta, market capitalization of less than $1 billion on Lazy Boy. Secondly, Sully, we transitioned Aren't you worried Cleveland- about the consumer? Hold on. Are you worried about the consumer? I'm not worried about the consumer. $600 recliner. You know what I mean? Well, it's more than $600. I'm the proud owner of a Lazy Boy. So let me tell you, it's a little more than, a titch more than $600. But I think as you see people pausing about homes, people pausing on big purchases, they're going to talk and focus back in to what's important to them. And sitting on that Lazy Boy may be one of those notions. Now, beat up year to date, I think there is an opportunity for this to move higher. Technically, it is oversold. It is beaten up. It has a long way to go to get back to its 50-day moving average. But I think the consumer, the household debt, Sully, it's still okay. Year to date. Not bad. Yeah. And sit back and watch Drew Pine. <laughs> By the way, the son of one of our frequent guests, George Pine, your quarterback at Notre Dame. I mean, do we have to avoid almost every other major multinational company? I, what, anywhere between 10 and 40 percent of many of these companies' earnings come from Europe, where they're getting just destroyed. The U.K., the British pounds at an all-time low. It's, again, good for travel, good for dining out if you're in France. It is. Bad for selling stuff. I think at this notion in time, we've seen the strength of the dollar. If you look at the U.S. dollar index at 114, it's remarkable to see. And this is the velocity, and this is the second misstep, Sully. Federal Chairman uh, Powell is really going to have a hard time really walking back. But maybe this week the Fed presidents soften that hawkish stance and the dollar relents a little bit. But you're seeing the rupee at historic lows. You're seeing all these currencies across the globe at historic lows. There's going to be some form of ramification or retaliation, if you will. But I think another name that makes sense is Cleveland Cliffs. at Cleveland Cliffs. That's a commodity name. It's beat up here today. If I call them an iron ore company one more time, the CEO's calling me out on earnings calls because I called them an iron ore company. But again, tongue in cheek. Yes, but going back to the metrics we utilized, the screen looking for value inside of a mid cap, this is a smaller, under $10 billion of market cap. It presents value. But it's interesting, the U.S. dollar, I think if you're just affecting your portfolio or moving your portfolio now, it could be a little bit too late. I think you had to be considered all year long as we saw interest rates moving higher. We saw that movement from growth to value. Here we are so trying to be a little bit of dance between the raindrops because I think we're at peak inflation in June. I think yeah. we're at peak yields right now in the U.S. dollar index. It has a trajectory of still moving higher, but I think we're going to see some retaliation moving the dollar index lower. Looking at that two-year yield at 4.32. Not sustainable. No, no, it's not. And then you look at also, you just said it. I mean, potentially peak inflation in June. I mean, could the Federal Reserve have just timed everything more incorrectly? It, it's unbelievable. I mean, it's, it's just... It's like, you know what it was? Tom Brady's a winner. He's a king. 
But they, you see they mismanaged their clock yesterday. They Fed, did, but you know what the difference between Tom Brady and Fed Chairman Powell? Tom, Tom Brady's Tom. probably going to play five more seasons. Fed Chairman Powell, I don't know if he's playing much more. <sighs> five weeks. I mean, you wonder how long he can last. Yes. I love it. Cleveland Cliffs, the MDYTF, and Active Man, a.k.a. Lazy Boy. They got a ch- you know, one of these million-dollar names, Jeff. Thank you very much. Jeff Thank Gilbert, you, Sally. KKM Financial. All right. Coming up, the yield on the 10-year yield, 10-year note, climbing more than 20% in just September alone. Are bonds no longer boring? Well, according to some financial advisors, they're not. And you might be shocked at who is now interested in buying treasuries. That story with Kate Rooney coming up next. All right, welcome back. Well, safety is sexy, at least for now. In bonds, the stock slide. Younger investors are now looking for ways to add bonds to their portfolio. Hard to believe, but true. And for many, that might be a first. Sharon Epperson has that story and some of the best strategies for now. I I did a double take on this story, Sharon. Young people and bonds? They don't go together. It's hard to believe. It's hard to believe, Brian. I know over the years, millennials have mostly invested in stocks or crypto. And well, we know that hasn't gone very well lately. So now some younger investors are exploring bonds. It's important to understand a bond's credit risk as well as its duration, its price sensitivity to interest rates. And they can be a bit complex to less experienced investors. But still, financial advisor Kristen O'Keefe Merrick says it's a good time to consider a range of fixed income assets from investment grade and high yield corporate bonds to treasuries. Treasury bonds are obviously backed by the United States government. So there is very, 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 very low default risk on those. Um, And so it's kind of a very low risk play to generate almost 4%. Now, that may be pretty attractive right now. One of the top reasons millennials have been bailing on their investments is fear of losing money, according to Ally Financial. Its recent survey found millennials have been more likely than any other generation to sell their investments over the past year. Nearly half of them, 49%, sold all or some of their investments from August 2021 to August 2022. Meanwhile, only 21% of Gen X, 17% of Gen Z, and 13% of boomers sold investments during that time. Now, if you have cash to put to work, Merrick says consider adding bonds to your portfolio as a tactical play for the next year or two. Think of bonds as a temporary placeholder for extra cash, not as a replacement for equities and not as a long-term investment, Brian. Here's the thing, though, Sharon. It's like I can go on my cell phone and buy a stock while like ordering McDonald's. Bonds are a little different. <laughs> What's the best? If, if our audience wants to buy bonds, where do they do it? How do they do it? Well, of course, one way to do it is to work with a financial advisor. If you want to do it on your own, though, a couple places to turn are brokerages that don't have commission fees, like a Fidelity or a Vanguard might be a place you want to look at. Or if you do want to do it on your own and have a custom-built portfolio using a robo-advisor like Wealthfront or Betterment may be another way to go. So Merrick says there's ways, ways to do it. There's a range of them. But Working with a financial advisor, you know me, I always think that's a great way to go. But if you do want to do it on your own, there are options to do that as well. Good stuff. Really interesting. Bonds, maybe the new stocks. Sharon, thank you. All right, coming up, the Bears. They were out in force last week. What a record amount of protection buying in the options market reveals about where stocks may be headed. Some numbers you have got to hear. That is next. Stocks down once again. We're back right after this. All right, welcome back. This one is for all of you who try to read the options tea leaves, and it may not be great news. Traders bought protection at the fastest rate ever on Friday. 
According to new data, a record 33 million bearish contracts changed hands with SPY, the S&P 500, puts the volume ratio also spiking to an all-time high as rate hikes around the world touched off a wave of volatility. Is it just a hedge, though, or does it indicate more pain ahead? Let's bring in Chris Murphy, co-head of derivative strategy at Susquehanna. Chris, wow. I mean, these numbers are gigantic. I mean, the number of people seemingly betting against the market on Friday is massive. Do we know if they're betting against the market or are they using it as a hedge for a long position? Um, yeah, I mean, that's all true. Uh, last week was the second highest weekly put volume of all time, 110 million, uh, only below uh, uh, June of this year. Uh, yeah, but one thing to keep in mind, it is not the, you know, all uh, the tail hedges, you know, the panic type hedges. We are seeing so much rolling of positions. So what that means is the investors have their hedges on. Uh, and they get a move like we had for the S&P, where it goes 10, down 10% in two weeks, and then they're rolling those hedges. So, and those hedges might be put spread. So all of a sudden, if you're rolling a put spread, you know that's a lot of options contracts, and that's why we get to those massive numbers. So obviously, a lot of hedging going on, uh, but not every trade is a purely uh, a, a bearish bet. Uh, we're seeing a lot of monetizing of positions, rolling positions. Um, and I would also point out, you know, of the uh, top nine most active, active put volume months, they've all happened in 2022. So we have to keep in mind, uh, options are just a bigger part of the marketplace right now. And whenever there's panic like there is right now or sell-offs like there is right now, uh, we're going to set new records. Yeah, I was looking. I think it was Bank of America. Gosh, I hope I'm not wrong. If it is, whatever. But it was, it was like a sentiment survey, max bullish Max Bearish it was like a speedometer, you know, one of these arrow things. It was at 0.0. It was like D-Day's, you know, you know, GPA or whatever in, in, in Animal House. Couldn't get any more awful. But isn't that when you're looking for entry points, right? I mean, max fear, max panic. That's when you want to buy longer, I think. Uh, I mean... I definitely agree with you. You know, you could talk about the sentiment indicators, the VIX term structure finally uh, inverted today. Um, these are all traditional, you know, typical capitulation indicators. Uh, they've worked for 20 years. The only issue we have right now is the Fed hasn't been this hawkish for over 20 years. So, you know, we like to look at all those indicators and we do think they're signs to buy. You know, we were also expecting, you know, we might see a little bit of a bounce this week, um, you know, but if, you know, Everybody is kind of expecting a bounce and just waiting on the sidelines to sell it. Are we really going to get a bounce? You know, I'm not sure. So all those indicators are there. Uh, the only difference right now is the Fed. And so what? What's the next major thing? Are you are we just going to sit back and wait for another month to the November 1st and 2nd meeting? I don't want to go through. Uh, I don't know about you, Chris. I don't want to go through October like that, waiting on the uh, Fed every day. Yeah, I mean, I would point to, you know, seasonality could be helpful. Uh, the, the last three months of the year are always the best three months of the year on average. Um, if you look back, you know, long term, uh, particularly in a midterm election year. You know, so you can look at that. You know, the setup we have right now is interest rates are going higher and the market is grinding lower. Um, you know, we're yeah. not having as much panic as we'd like to see to really be a bottom uh, unless the strong dollar breaks something. We're finding it and it might. Chris Murphy, Susquehanna, great stuff. Max Bearish Betts, wow. All right, on deck. While all those easy auto leases may be a thing of the past, Phil's up next with that. All right, welcome back. And want to get one more thing before we go today, and that is the growing lack of car and truck leases. Automobile makers, automobile makers scaling back on those programs 
as rates rise and car supplies still remain tight. Phil Abo joining us now with that story. Phil. Brian, are you a lease guy or a buy guy? Buy guy. Cash only, no debt, never. Oh, there you go. Well, if you're a lease person, and look, one out of every four vehicles sold every month typically were leased vehicles, but that's changed dramatically. In fact, the percentage of vehicles on a monthly basis that are sold or actually a lease as part of the sales, it's down to 17%. In short, the automakers and auto dealers have cut back leasing by about 30% in the last year. Three things are driving this. One, the lower production because of the chip shortage, the supply chain issues. That means there's a tighter inventory at dealerships. And rising rates have also had people say, wait a second, does it make more sense to try to lease and to find something to lease? Or do I just go out and bite the bullet and pay for a new vehicle or a used vehicle? Look at the monthly payments and how much they've changed in the last year. This is according to Edmonds. Leasing has gone up to an average monthly payment of $581. Still cheaper than buying, but not much better uh, or not much more expensive than buying used, which has some people saying, well, why don't I just go ahead and buy used? Take a look at the auto dealer stocks. And what the dealers have noticed is that fewer people are bringing back a leased vehicle and looking to roll into another lease. Instead, they're saying, well, how much will it cost to buy out the lease on this vehicle? They're then buying it. And because of the residual values, Brian, a lot of people are saying, I'm just going to hang on to this. Or I'm going to turn around and go down the street and sell it to somebody else because the value of a used vehicle is so great right now. Well, why? When, when are the prices? Used cars have come down a little bit. A little bit, Phil. But why are there still? Yeah, that, there's that, nothing you know, on Brian, the market. I, I, I don't buy into that too much. I don't much. either. It's that's, crap. that's the wholesale market. It's whole, that's the wholesale data Man showing I, that they've the come auto, down. The auto go auction. out and talk to dealers. The, yeah, the, if you go and talk to dealers what the retail prices are doing, they haven't changed a whole lot. It's going to take some time before we see that. There's still so much demand that's out there in the market. Just go down the Pennsylvania Turnpike and you pass the Mannheim Auto Auction. They're on your right if you're heading south. And yeah. Car lot looks full. I don't know what's going on. Fill a bow. I'm going to drive that 2010 Jeep Wrangler till it, it croaks, my friend. I'm going to keep going with it. It's got roll-up windows. About <laughs> You're six, not alone. Six miles to the gallon. Phil LeBeau, thank you very much. Appreciate it. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place.